Welcome back to the Equipoise Podcast. Today's episode, Here We Go, part one of 12 in our Bible translation series. Today, we're finally opening up the can of worms known as the Bible translation discussion, or more specifically and practically speaking, the King James-only controversy. Before we jump into any real discussion on the issue, I want to share with you why I'm doing this miniseries. After all, one of my most trusted friends said, I really shouldn't make this miniseries since it likely won't change any minds and only give folks more fodder for the rumor mill. And he has a point. My most passed over topic so far on the podcast had been my miniseries on alcohol. (laughs) I feel like I did a fairly good job covering the topic from a balanced perspective, but... It appears, based on my listener charts, that most folks have already decided what they're going to believe. But here's the thing. After I completed my miniseries on alcohol, one pastor friend reached out to me to let me know that he and his wife had engaged in a serious study on what the Bible has to say on alcohol, in part due to my podcast, and came to a more balanced conclusion as a result. So, if there's even a possibility that I can do the same thing with regards to the Bible translation issue, even for just one or two people... I'll consider this miniseries a success. Okay, so here we go. Why is this discussion important? What's really at stake here? Well, a lot to be totally transparent with you. If I could say it in a nutshell, my motivation for wading into the often muddy waters of this discussion is an unswerving dedication to the truth. As humans created in the image of a truthful God, and as Christians especially, we should be committed to regularly pursuing truth no matter the cost. In the course of this pursuit, we welcome, although reluctantly at times, new evidence, discoveries, and considerations to aid us in coming to the right conclusions about reality. The Bible translation conversation is an arena in which truth has been far too often left at the doorstep in favor of emotion, tradition, fear of change, peer pressure, and an enormous trust in those who have instructed many of us on this issue over the years. As a result, facts are often anathema and feelings sit on the throne in their place. Those who consider shifting away from the King James Bible only are announced as leaving the Word of God, as it was in my case, and they are often considered pariahs in many denominational traditions. It is my persuasion that truth needs a fresh invitation to this discussion, and as Christians, this is something about which we should be excited rather than fearful, or worse, obstinate. But despite the fact that truth, all truth, should be our goal, we Christians can often be rather choosy when it comes to pursuing, uncovering, embracing, and propagating truth. In our modern America, for example, if someone were to say there are more than two genders, many Christians would leap to the defense of the truth, however ill-prepared or imperfect their defense or presentation may be. Same with other issues such as abortion or human sexuality. Rightly so, many of us will stop at nothing. No research too intense, no fact too far, no statistic too complex, and no YouTube video too long to arrive at a confident position about that which we are passionate, particularly when the truths we've chosen to defend are, in our minds, self-evident, such as the sacredness of life or dichotomy of gender. With this in mind, I move to submit to you that we have, either for lack of time, interest, or other resources, remained rather ignorant on the Bible translation issue. That's not an insult, just a fact. 
I'd guess that most of us know more about our favorite sports team's roster than the history of biblical translation. I'm not slamming us for that. But I mention it because, in my experience, our relative lack of knowledge on the biblical translation issue does not seem to prevent many Christians from getting quite passionate and even upset about a topic in which they've personally done very little research. If that doesn't make sense, then consider the following illustration. Imagine I was told time and time again by someone I love and trust that the Baltimore Orioles won the World Series in 1984. Maybe I even took a couple of college courses or went through a week-long seminar somewhere that related this same information. Over the years, I became rather entrenched in the position that the Orioles, in fact, did win the World Series that year. Someone who is from Detroit, however, might beg to differ with my position. <laughs> or someone who's a baseball aficionado. They say, no, I'm sorry, that's not right. Now imagine I get all hot under the collar and start arguing with this fella because I heard what I heard from someone I love and trust or studied this from winsome and engaging sources. That may be unreasonable, but it's also understandable because he's challenging something very close to my heart. And he's actually challenging my judgment because if he's right, then this means I've made a years-long, possibly even lifelong series of mistakes in who I chose to trust and what sources I chose to believe about this issue. So... There's a lot of motivation for me to push back on this, despite the very apparent fact that I've never researched this for myself. It's close to my heart because it's linked to someone I love and trust. I've heard it for many years. I've studied it from many sources that agree with me on the issue, and I've never had any real reason to question it as my life goes on just fine without having delved too deeply into it. So... What do I do in this scenario when I'm being challenged on this belief of mine that the Orioles were the World Series champs in 1984? How would you want me to respond, especially as a Christian? Accuse this person of being dishonest? Assume he's trusting the wrong people? Insist they hate the person who told me the Orioles won the pennant? Dig in my heels because if I'm wrong, it means I've been wrong for decades? Or should I get lunch with this guy, crack a book or two, and see if I can't learn something about which I know very little from an expert or someone who was actually at the game? I hope you understand my point. I believe there's some pretty bad assumptions underlying most of the arguments in favor of the King James-only movement, and there are assumptions that, in my personal story, I never bothered to challenge. And when they were challenged from without, directly or indirectly, I responded like the fella in the illustration, or like you might be responding right now. I got a little bit defensive, or maybe worse, because something I believed my whole life and was strengthened by a college course or three was being assaulted. And since the Bible is so foundational to my faith, I actually got the sense that my faith was being indirectly challenged. I, like many other King James onlyists, was concerned that if I wasn't correct, all that was left was confusion, inconsistency, and error. And I was wrong. I had created an idol of what I believed about this issue, and it had grown tendrils and vines around my faith itself. To tear down this grove was to tear down my faith. And so I created a boogeyman of this issue and inadvertently vilified or antagonized the intelligence of those who disagreed with me on this. But I submit to you that it's time to kill the boogeyman. And I promise you that we can remove the cancerous tumors of the many falsehoods embedded so deeply in this topic without eroding the bedrock of our faith, which is in Christ Jesus the King. And it's high time that we stop being vitriolic, slanderous, or stubborn about this. Those are evil things, and they're far more sinful than any translational option could be. Lastly on this, 
Tyndale's vision was that the Bible be translated out of the high church Latin into a language that was spoken commonly among the people. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. About a hundred years later, in the preface to the King James Version, the translators said their goal was so that the scripture may speak like itself, as in the language of Canaan, that it may be understood even of the very vulgar, end quote. You see, one of the hallmarks of Christianity that has set it apart from other religions is that we have always, whether at large or in small groups, endeavored, often at the price of blood, to make sure that the people can read it in their common tongue so that people wouldn't need to look up words in order to understand what they're reading in their own language. A pastor friend of mine recently said that this desire for a more modern translation was laziness. I profoundly disagree. I think it's laziness that we aren't being intellectually honest about this issue and doing the work of textual criticism and proper self-examination. I maintain that it's really quite tragic that the art of biblical translation seems to have come to a sudden, needless halt for reasons that, if properly examined, are insufficient to justify the cessation of God's work of translation of the Bible into the language of the plowboy. And that's why this is important. Until next time, stay balanced. Stay balanced.